This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn. Thanks so much for joining me today. We are going to stay in old Hollywood this week, at least for part of our story. Although we will be taking quite an international tour to talk about the first flapper, Olive Thomas, and her husband, the bad boy of Hollywood, Jack Pickford. We have been all around the Pickfords with Jack's older sister, Mary Pickford, star of the screen. We have talked about Pickfair quite a bit, Mary's home with her husband, Douglas Fairbanks Sr. But after last week's Garden of Allah episode, it was the perfect time to get to this story, which happens within the same time frame. Before we dive into the wild romance of Olive and Jack and the mysterious death of Olive as well, I want to take out my spyglass because there are a few of you that I want to recognize and celebrate. Enormous thanks to Rory W. and Heidi F., our newest supporters over at patreon.com slash doneanddone. You two have joined the ranks of folks getting early and ad-free episodes to the whole catalog and bonus episodes, too. We've got a few of those coming this week, so stay tuned. I also have a special shout-out for Allison in my spyglass. Thank you for listening and for your support and for telling my uncle how great you think Done and Done is. You rock, Allison. In getting to our investigation this week, Dominic Dunn would not have written about these two specifically. Olive Thomas's death happened before our man Nick was even born. However, the mark that these two, Jack and Olive, make on the culture and the people around them, as well as the lessons or warnings, either way you want to look at that, that each of them reveal in their young and wild and ultimately tragic lives is truly profound. Let's investigate. the flapper and the bad boy. We are all probably a little bit more familiar with the term and the archetype of the bad boy. Maybe we've all dated a few in our time or maybe our friends have. In this situation, Jack Pickford is the bad boy. But I want to explore the flapper archetype for just a moment. We have spent so much time in the Gilded Age in the last weeks and we know those characters staunch, rigid, sticking to a system of class and cash, so to speak. By the time we're rolling into the end of the 1910s, there is a new kind of lady that is taking America by storm, and honestly, the world too. The flapper is not an American phenomenon per se, but our girl, Olive Thomas, is going to be the epitome of what it means stateside. In May of 1920, Olive Thomas is starring in the film appropriately enough entitled The Flapper. Naturally, the moniker will attach to her, but 
Not kidding, friends, this role was not miscast with Olive Thomas in the lead. So let's define flapper by the dictionary. What is a flapper? Flapper's a noun used to refer to a fashionable young woman intent on enjoying herself and flouting conventional standards of behavior. Simple enough, right? But what does enjoying oneself and flouting conventional standards of behavior look like in the 1920s? And why would we want to? By the time we make it to the era of the flapper, we're looking at the end of World War I. A lot of men are not coming home after the conclusion of that war. The ones that are coming home have lived through the horror of war. Within the United States, you've had a national influenza epidemic all through 1918, and you very much have people feeling in the way of, you only live once, YOLO, right? Life is short, we better take advantage of it. You have more women than ever now entering not only entering educational pathways that were not available before, like college, but women are also entering the workforce. Many young gals at this time are looking around at their options and have decided that they want a different life than perhaps their staunch, rigid Victorian mothers may have had. And hey, have you heard about cars? And I don't actually have to rely on anyone to get me around anymore? And it also serves as a convenient makeout place, too? Hey, what about speakeasies and theaters? And as a young woman, there's a life out there that is just waiting on me, for me, with no rules. I can smoke, I can wear short skirts, I can cut my hair. What nonsense is this? I don't need a corset. To young women in this time period, this smells a lot like freedom, folks. The war's over. People are having more fun than ever. Leisure time in the United States is at an all-time high. You've got people moving into the big cities and progress happening in a ton of ways. The Industrial Revolution is making new strides now. Big business will naturally all corrupt it in just a few short years, but hey, in the 1920s, we're living in the good times. I do have a quote here from my very favorite flapper, Zelda Fitzgerald. Zelda Fitzgerald learns how to do it by watching Olive Thomas. Zelda Fitzgerald will write in her description of a flapper. The flapper awoke from her lethargy of sub-debism, bobbed her hair, put on her choicest pair of earrings, and a great deal of audacity and rouge and went into the battle. She flirted because it was fun to flirt and wore a one-piece bathing suit because she had a good figure. She was conscious that the things she did were the things she had always wanted to do. Mothers disapproved of their sons taking the flapper to dances, to tease, to swim, and most of all, to heart. It is a special time for the flapper, the late 19-teens and early 20s, and the time of the flapper is long gone by the time we get to the next decade, when the United States will be struggling through a Great Depression and honestly terrible times for a lot of folks. But y'all, the flapper revolution brings many changes in a short amount of time for the ladies. The ladies got the vote. 
the ladies are never going back to corsets. Ladies never go back to ankle-length skirts. Women still drive cars. Women go to work. Women are fabulous in whatever way we choose to be. Rebel on, y'all. Rebel on. I mean, isn't that what an archetype is? A model of the moment giving us a movement that shapes something in which people can identify. It's a perfect time now to introduce the very first flapper today, Olive Thomas. Olive was born Olivetta Duffy into an Irish family in a Pennsylvania mill town. Olive is born October 20th, 1894, and her father is a steel worker. Tragically, he dies in an accident when Olive is 12. Olive's mother is a factory worker, and mom will pretty quickly remarry once Olive's father passes away, leaving Olive and her younger brothers with their grandparents. Mom is out. Gone. Olive will leave school at the age of 15. She'll sell gingham in the department store for $2.75 a week. But very similar to Evelyn Nesbitt, who we talked about back in episode 27 with the murder of Stanford White, Olive is good looking. So Olive is going to start posing nude in a studio in Philadelphia for some extra cash. But Olive does not have the overprotective mother in the same way that Evelyn Nesbitt did. There's no influence there to encourage Olive to keep her clothes necessarily on, but the times, they are changing. So here we have Olive, extraordinarily good looking. She was going to land her first husband, Bernard Thomas, pretty early. This is April of 1911. Olive is 16. She is working at Kaufman's department store. Bernard is also working at Kaufman's as a department store clerk. Love over the department store aisles. Olive and Bernard meet. They marry. But two years into the marriage, divorce papers are filed by Olive citing desertion and cruelty. It's a pretty miserable marriage. Olive is going to take off, going to stay with her relatives in Harlem, moving back to New York City and again looking for work as a model. It is at this time Olive decides to keep her married last name of Thomas and drop Duffy. Olive Thomas, y'all, enters and wins a contest to be the Christie girl. The Christie girl is the most beautiful girl in the city. This is similar to the Gibson girl competition generation before, but there's a commercial artist, Howard Chandler Christie, and he is looking for his Christie girl. Someone to model for him. The most beautiful girl in the city. No big surprise, Olive Thomas will win this particular competition. And now Olive is on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post. She's in vogue. She's working constantly, sometimes in clothes and sometimes without them. But Olive is making it. She's making it. Like, she's really becoming famous as one of the first supermodels in America. By 1915, Olive is now 20 years old, and modeling is going well enough, but she has her sights set on a new gig. Have you heard about the Ziegfeld Follies? There's a New York guy, Florence Ziegfeld, 
and he is going to create the most spectacular show you have ever seen. Girls and costumes and dances. The Ziegfeld Follies is a review show to end all review shows. The Follies opens at the New Amsterdam Theater in 1913 in New York City. And New York City has never seen anything like the Ziegfeld Follies. There is a regular show, which happens in the theater. But at the New Amsterdam, there's also a rooftop theater. And on that rooftop theater, there's another alternative show called The Midnight Frolic, which is even more risque than what happens in the main show in the theater. See if I can describe this to you. There are scantily clad, if all, girls floating on moons. There are men with cigars who can pop the balloon outfits that the Ziegfeld Folly girls are wearing. Patrons, to signify their particular enjoyment of the show, each have a gavel on their table where they may hammer out their glee. Also within that rooftop theater, the ladies will promenade up and down a see-through walk, a see-through bridge that hangs overhead of the theater where patrons can just look up their skirts, all for the price of admission. Again, New York has never seen anything like Ziegfeld Follies, and this is the show that our good time gal Olive Thomas wants in on. Florence Ziegfeld, the producer of the show, is naturally besotted with Olive. There's a small complication. Florence is already married, a little bit pesky, especially, most especially, for his current wife, who is actress Billy Burke. That name is not familiar. I guarantee you she has starred in a role that you have most certainly seen. Billy Burke starred as the Good Witch of the North, Glinda, in 1939's The Wizard of Oz. Olive, because her talent really is charming charisma, does not just get the job as the star of the Midnight Frolic. Olive also attains another position, which is that of Florence Ziegfeld's mistress. All the other girls starring with her in the show detest her. Every male customer, in addition to Florence, adores her. Men always have and will always adore Olive Thomas. I need to tell you her charm, her charisma, her general appeal are Olive's moneymaker. Movie historian Terry Ramsey, writing in 1926, will describe Olive Thomas and the dazzling impact she makes on stage. She was a sudden sensation, the toast of Broadway. Strong men grew dizzy under her eyes. She was overwhelmed with admiration and gifts of treasure. Diamond necklaces, pendants, rings, parties, orchids, everything. Now, Olive Thomas, I need to let you know, her language is crude. She's a little crass, but... Olive never means any ill will. She will flash her jewelry around when those other girls start to make fun of her to her face. In one particular incident, she will pull out a sparkling diamond ring where she will boast to her fellow dancing girls had cost her a, quote, couple of humps in Palm Beach, unquote, with an admirer. Olive, rough childhood 
has worked her way by hook and crook up the ladder. She's a dancer. She's a model. She's a courtesan. Olive Thomas is flapping her way into whatever she wants. There are no rules anymore for women at this time. No one is telling Olive Thomas what to do. This is a fantastic time to take a quick break to hear a word from our amazing sponsors this week. I'll see you back on the flip where we meet the other half of our couple. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? And we're back. I want you to picture Olive Thomas working at the Midnight Frolic. She is riding a large, giant moon floating above in that rooftop theater at the New Amsterdam. And across the crowd, Olive spots a regular customer. And I need to tell you, this particular patron really, really loves the Ziegfeld Follies. His name is Jack Pickford. And Jack's older sister, Mary, is the darling of Hollywood, America's sweetheart. This time we're looking at 1915-1916. Jack comes with a, with a lot of luggage. Jack is born August 18th, 1896. He is born in Canada, like his sister Mary and like his sister Gladys. But the Pickford family is about to take America by storm. And when I say the Pickford family, I mostly mean the Pickford women. Because Jack is an actor. Because that's what his sister, Mary, and his mother told him that he was going to be. Jack, as a kid, moves from stage to screen he will play Tom Sawyer. Jack is a well-known child and young adult actor. Jack accumulates, what, 134 acting credits in his career. Jack also is known to do a lot of projects with William Desmond Taylor, which is a delightful story for a future day. But the thing I want you to know about Jack Pickford, he is a party boy. He is perhaps weighted down with the fame of his sister and his other famous sister and He's famous enough in his own right, but as he's growing up, the heyday of his stardom as a child and young adult actor, all of that shine is wearing off a little bit. And his oldest sister, Mary, her trajectory at this time is astronomical. Jack is the youngest. He is spoiled. He is immature. What I need you to know is that Jack is a good time guy and also a disgrace. Olive for her part, is a good-time girl, and smashing her way to the next level of success. The two meet. They're having a really good time. They both really like living fast. They both really like sex. Olive, for her part, really likes the gifts that Jack lavishes upon her. 
Within weeks of their meeting, Jack has gifted Olive a platinum cigarette case worth a quarter of a million dollars in 2018 terms. By the time that Jack and Olive meet in March 1916, Olive is a little bit done with Ziegfeld Follies. She has admitted by this point that Florence Ziegfeld is not going to leave his wife. And quite frankly, if she's going to be smart about it, there are better opportunities that are happening within the movies. Jack's family disapproves of this whole entire match. But no matter to the couple, the couple will head to New Jersey because everything's legal in New Jersey and secretly elope in 1916. They keep it a secret for a year. No one in the press knows. They will tell the Pickford family, and they have some things to say. But Olive, for her part, is keeping it secret, keeping it safe. She is determined to use her own skills and talents to achieve her success. She refuses to trade in on the Pickford name. Olive wants to do it on her own if success is going to come to her. Now, in 1916, Mary Pickford, the big sister, is fairly unhappy in her terrible first marriage. And potentially, the blonde, curly, pigtailed star is looking at Olive Thomas, about to start competing in her territory within films in Hollywood, and has a lot to say, much of it after the fact. Mary glosses over quite a bit of this, With Mary Pickford, everything is reputation and how it looks, how it appears. Her infidelity scandal with Douglas Fairbanks Sr. hasn't even happened yet. Additionally, the marriage of Joan Crawford and Douglas Fairbanks Jr. has not happened yet. Many of the players in Hollywood learn some bad behavior by watching Jack. We learned it by watching you, man. Anywho... Big sister Mary Pickford is a little bit more reserved in her later recollections, not what she's saying to her brother at that time. Mary Pickford recalls in her book, Sunshine and Shadow from 1955, I regret to say that none of us approved of the marriage at that time. Mother thought Jack was too young, and Lottie and I felt that Olive, being in musical comedy, belonged to an alien world. Ollie had all the rich, eligible men of the social world at her feet. She had been deluged with proposals from her own world of the theater as well, which was not at all surprising. The beauty of Olive Thomas is legendary. The girl had the loveliest violet-blue eyes I have ever seen. They were fringed with long, dark lashes that seemed darker because of the delicate, translucent pallor of her skin. I could understand why Florence Siegfeld never forgave Jack for taking her away from the Follies. She and Jack were madly in love with one another, but I always thought of them as a couple of children playing together. I don't know, I hate to tell Mary Pickford, but this is a bunch of lies. Jack Pickford doesn't take Olive away from the Follies. Olive was already gone. Because have you heard of movies? Hollywood is already calling for Olive Thomas in a really big way, especially one big-time movie producer and director. He also happens to be in love with her. Not only in addition to being in love, this guy also wants to create a studio around her 
all part of his idea of his triangle pictures. This big-time movie producer and director is named Thomas Entz, and Thomas Entz is going to suffer his own mysterious death on a party boat named the Oneida, owned by William Randolph Hearst in just a few short years. But at this time in our story, Tom Entz is alive, and Olive Thomas is what he's going for, and even though Olive will make some films for Triangle, here you get the intersection of another legendary Hollywood producing and directing family. Into this equation comes Myron Selznick. Myron Selznick is the brother of David O. Selznick. And the thing I want you to remember about the Selznick brothers, Myron and David O., is they are always looking to redeem their father, Louis J. Selznick. Louis J. was pushed out of his company by the future founder of Paramount Pictures, Adolf Zucker. Myron Selznick at this point wants to make the Selznick family name good. Myron is about to have his own theater company, and he convinces Olive Thomas to come and work for him. How does he sell this deal? He tells Olive that it's not only going to be starring roles in films, but Olive will also be able to set up a production company as well under this umbrella. Olive Thomas, smart as a cookie, she's going to go after what she wants in a time where women don't always. Olive Thomas really does, in a way, set the trend for many female stars that follow after her. Mary Pickford is going to take a cue from Olive Thomas at this point in just a few years later and co-found United Artists. Olive Thomas is a role model for so many women in Hollywood that come after her. Joan Crawford, as previously mentioned, Louise Brooks, even Clara Bow. Olive Thomas sets the stage. She is the fantasy. She has made it to becoming a successful movie star. She has fancy clothes and jewels and fast cars. She attends the most exclusive parties. And Olive, as well as Olive and Jack together, are headline news in the press. Everything she does, everything they do, this fantasy is printed for all to read. It is said about Olive at the time that she has the morals of an alley cat. I disagree. I see Olive Thomas really as a gal who's worked her way out of a life that she didn't want any part of. And she worked her way out of that life with her own grit and determination using the gifts she has, which is mostly her ability to enchant the opposite sex. It was a different world then, but I think the same rules still apply today. You use what you got and you play to your strengths. Now, Jack Pickford, the boy who's never had a consequence in his life, protected by his sister's position and his family's position in Hollywood, there's never been a stain on the Pickford name. And that includes Jack, and boy, howdy does he get into a lot of trouble. But Jack has never really had a moral in his life. I think he's kind of the alley cat. But the both of them, no matter which way you want to crumble that cookie, are out to have a good time. Again, the two meet. They're married inside of months. Their attraction is intense. And Olive Thomas, using a metaphor for their very active sex life, she will call it dancing. See, the two really love to 
dance. In June 1919, there's an interview from Motion Picture Magazine where Olive Thomas talks about their dancing this way. Jack is a beautiful dancer. He danced his way into my heart. We knew each other for eight months before our marriage, and most of that time we gave to dancing. We got along so well on the dance floor that we just naturally decided that we'd be able to get along together for the remainder of our lives. So that 1916 secret marriage, they are able to keep secret for about a year. But by 1917, the truth is revealed and Jack and Olive become the Hollywood it couple. They are stars on screen and off. They live fast and loose. They drink too much. They drive too fast. They have passion and terrible fights and wonderful reunions. And all of this is headline news in the papers each day. Wild rumors abound. They fight, they make up, they give each other extravagant gifts as part of their makeup ritual. I'm sure they dance a lot too. I want you to put something in your brain here. All of this is happening between 1917 and 1920. And I want to let you know that the two biggest fans of Jack Pickford and Olive Thomas that are watching them at this time are a young girl from Montgomery, Alabama, named Zelda Sayre and her future author husband, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Scott and Zelda haven't quite yet met, but they're both watching from their individual locations, Jack and Olive. And when Zelda and Scott do meet and fall in love and marry in the coming short years, Jack and Olive are the role model of a couple for Scott and Zelda. Scott thinks that Zelda looks just like Olive Thomas. Scott and Zelda follow all of their antics, all of their headline news, all of their reports in the paper, both together and individually, to figure out ways for Scott and Zelda to compound their legacy when they break out just a few years later. Scott and Zelda... I think, are imitating Jack and Olive forever. Which, because Olive Thomas will die in 1920, just as Scott and Zelda have gotten married, the couple archetype that they have together, individually and then together, never evolves. Scott and Zelda don't really have a place to grow into that next phase because they didn't have their role models of Jack and Olive. So they always stay, both couples really, stuck in this wild life, party time, life of excess until they get both of them to the individual tragedy part. I find the direct corollary between Scott and Zelda and Jack and Olive here fascinating, but I digress. Jack and Olive are scandal. They're all over town. The press writes them up all the time. Francis Marion comments on the couple's lifestyle. I had seen Olive often at the Pickford home and she was engaged to Mary's brother Jack. Two innocent looking children, they were the gayest, wildest brats who ever stirred the stardust on Broadway. Both were talented, but they were much more interested in playing the roulette of life than in concentrating on their careers. 
we have Variety in September of 1917, writing up Jack Pickford returning from a party at 4 a.m. September 9th, Los Angeles and his machine with Olive Thomas, Catherine Walker, Mr. and Mrs. William Gordon, and Jack Dillon crashed into a light truck, demolishing the truck and upsetting the Pickford car and its occupants. He can't even get into a fender bender, although at 4 a.m., probably, definitely, more to that story. Goodness, in 1918, we have the Los Angeles Herald writing up the jinx that seems to hover over Olive Thomas, Triangle Star, and her automobiles. Now, she has been in a car accident. It gets written in the paper, too. Not to be outdone by the January 3rd, 1920 headline, Olive Thomas, morning loss of $5,000 bracelet, announces the New York Telegraph. Every day, relentless headlines. By the time we get to 1917-1918, Jack Pickford, right, is the bad boy of the Pickford family, and Jack has decided he wants to be an aviator and a pilot within the Great War. And Jack, no big surprise here, has no intention of actually working to achieve that goal. But Jack will make it into the Navy where he is dishonorably discharged in not too long of a time. He's got a few big schemes. His first one is to help wealthy American men avoid the war. His other scheme is procuring sex workers for naval officers in order to get better gigs within the service. It is 1919, though, when Jack is, quote-unquote, I use this term very loosely, exonerated, where Jack comes in and says, I was just a witness to all these terrible things. I certainly wasn't the mechanic of any of them. I didn't do anything wrong. Jack's discharge decision is reversed, and now Jack can join the Veteran Association with his reputation intact. Now, as a couple, these two sort of fizzle out when they do get married. want to let you know that Jack Pickford has syphilis. He contracts that when he and Olive are on a break. Olive right now is working on the West Coast. And she and Jack don't see each other all that much. Just in 1919 alone, Olive Thomas will make eight films. Let's go ahead and bring our story up to May of 1920, when the flapper, Myron Selznick's production, is released. The plotline of the flapper tells of a flapper who falls for an older man and becomes a jewel thief in the process. Just as a historical time marker here, the flapper does release one month after the New York City wedding of Zelda Sayre and Scott Fitzgerald. But over the last few years, Jack has been on the East Coast, Olive has been on the West Coast. So after the release of her number one movie, The Flapper, by late summer, the two have decided, because of all the separate places they've been living in, the separate activities they've been doing, and all of the family Pickford manipulations that they want to take a real break. This is not a vacation with a promotional element that oftentimes happens with the studios, but this is going to be a second honeymoon. Not paid, not approved, just a time for the couple to reconnect and fall in love again in Paris. The two set sail for France for this romantic second honeymoon. 
They arrive August the 20th, 1920, and soon proceed to have days of spending sprees and parties. They lavishly celebrate Jack's birthday. Also, they're hanging out with a convicted cocaine smuggler and drug dealer at the time. This is a pretty wild late summer, early autumn in Paris for the couple. Olive is writing letters to her mother at this point. She's ready to return home after a nice and wild trip. She doesn't tell her mom exactly all those details, but everything's legal in Paris, and they're there for a number of days, and maybe there's a fight. Mary Pickford, Jack's sister, has also arrived in London. So Jack decides at this time to take off from his honeymoon with his wife in Paris to go visit his sister in London. Olive, I can imagine, is not happy about Jack's decision. Jack does return to Paris, and now Jack and Olive in earnest are fighting. By the time September 5th comes around, each of them will go out, but they will not go out together. Olive will spend her night drinking with her friends in Montmartre at a bar called the Dead Rat. When the police questions this group later, one of them will tell the police, I can't tell you what happened, though, because I don't remember a thing after 2 a.m. Sometime in the wee small hours of the morning, each member of our couple comes back separately to their apartment at the Ritz. According to testimony from Jack Pickford, about 4 a.m., Olive gets out of bed complaining of a headache. She'll go to the bathroom, switch on the bathroom light. Jack yells at her to turn off the bathroom light, which Olive does. And supposedly, in the dark, fumbling for what she's looking for as aspirin, Olive will down the contents of a bottle of bichloride of mercury in alcohol instead. What does bichloride of mercury do? It was used at the time to treat syphilis sores. This is just a few years before the advent of antibiotics. Jack Pickford at that time had been suffering from venereal disease for two years. Both Jack and Olive fully know what bichloride of mercury is and what it was used for. We have the account of this story from Jack Pickford because what bichloride of mercury will do is burn your throat. Again, only Jack's testimony here. Over time, he will tell reporters that she was in the bathroom and suddenly she shrieked, My God! I jumped out of bed, rushed towards her, and caught her in my arms. She cried to me to find out what was in the bottle. I picked it up and read poison. Jack does not have the same story consistently told when he talks to his sister. He will explain that Olive, being very calm, said that she'd been looking for aspirin, and I don't know, I have a hard time believing it. It is odd to me that Olive Thomas would have mistaken liquid for pain pills. Some investigators even later suggest that maybe she thought it was a sleeping draft, there is an autopsy after her death, and one specialist will say that she had had so much alcohol that if she had taken a sleep potion in the same quantity, she would have been dead just the same. Jack Pickford, again, has a number of stories that he will continue to provide. 
In some of his versions, he'll say he called down to room service for eggs and will give Olive the raw whites of the eggs to soothe her burning mouth. In other accounts, Jack will say he went down to the kitchens to get butter to achieve the same purpose. He will naturally blame the delay in summoning a doctor on his failed attempts to contact the American Hospital of Paris, where Olive was taken. Olive is not able to tell the doctors what happened to her because of all the corrosive damage that has ravaged her throat. Olive will fall into a coma and her body will eventually shut down within about four days. Passing away, sadly, September the 10th, 1920. Jack will continue to tell his side of the story, which includes touching bedside farewells where Olive naturally exonerates him of any blame in her up-and-coming death. Jack will say that she awakened frequently and talked to him, saying it was all a mistake, Jack, and I'll be all right in a little while, don't worry. This doesn't make a whole lot of sense since biochloride of mercury does burn your vocal cords. Jack will continue to defend his innocence, saying all stories and rumors of the wild parties and cocaine and domestic fights since we left New York are untrue. Even friends of his will supplement his account of the story, saying it was only a tragic accident. Jack's conflicting versions, all of them, are the only official account of the death of Olive Thomas. The truth will never be uncovered. Jack Pickford will go on to marry two more times after the death of his first wife, Olive, the first occurs almost two years later, July 31st, 1922. Jack will marry a celebrated Broadway dancer and former Ziegfeld Follies girl. Her name is Marilyn Miller. Jack's second wedding does occur at Pickfair with his sister Mary's blessing, but Jack is going to Jack, and he quickly becomes abusive, likely in part to his continuing drug and alcohol misuse. Marilyn and Jack are separated in 1926, and Marilyn will receive a French divorce from Jack Pickford in November of 1927. But Jack Pickford, he really does have a type. There's one more marriage to, you guessed it, another former Ziegfeld Follies girl. Mary Mulhern is this lady's name, who at the tender age of 22 will marry Jack Pickford in the August of 1930. Will not come as any surprise, I think, here in this relationship. Just like Jack's other ones, he does grow abusive and violent in this marriage and is continuing deeper down his substance and alcohol misuse. Mary Mulhern doesn't stick around for too long. She is granted an interlocutory divorce in February 1932, which was not fully completed and finalized. By January 3rd, 1933, when Jack Pickford, at the age of 36, will die in the American Hospital in Paris, not too far away from where Olive Thomas passed away. Jack Pickford dies according to the reporting from progressive multiple neuritis, which attacked all the nerve centers, which is a pretty fancy name for drunk himself to death, as we say down here in the American South. 
His death is not as much of a mystery as Olive's is. And in my opinion, I do not think Olive killed herself. There was way too much going on with Olive. She has nerves of steel. She's on top of the box office with the flapper. Why, when you are finally breaking into your success that you have worked so hard for, would you choose to die by suicide? Olive is making $3,000 a week, which is nearly the yearly salary of an average American at that point. Financially, she's doing better than she ever has. Olive, having suffered through a terrible childhood, an unhappy early marriage, and an unhappy second one, has learned that there's not anything Olive can't get out of. Olive was a survivor. I just can't reckon that Olive would intentionally do this. There will always be a mystery, at least in my flapper heart, about the real truth of what happened to Olive Thomas. I do want to close out this episode with a quote from her. Olive Thomas said, I think that you die when your time comes and not until then. I feel the same about other things as I do about death. I don't think you can change anything that's going to happen to you any more than you can change anything that has happened to you. That's why I never worry. And that's why I don't think people should get conceited and think themselves better than others. Spoken like a true flapper, Olive Thomas. What a shame you had a husband who did think himself a little bit better than others. Investigators, that is the wild romance and the tragic too soon ending of Olive Thomas, the first flapper who set the world on fire for a small slice of time. And her husband, Jack Pickford, this couple who rose so high and fell so far. Thank you so, so much for tuning in to listen to this episode today. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you for being here, for telling your friends about Done and Done, for your kind emails and your kind reviews too. Y'all are simply the best. Stay tuned for an extra surprise this week coming for you on Done and Done. And until we meet again then, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.